This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, I'll be speaking to you about Aquinas on the Divine Ideas and the Truth in Things. Uh, it will be a predominantly historically textual-based approach to considering the topic. So, as the title indicates, for Aquinas, there's some connection, some relationship between the divine ideas and truth in things. And it's precisely this relationship that I'm going to be addressing. But to consider that, we first need to address the items that are related, each on its own terms. Thus, two questions arise. What are the divine ideas? And what is truth in things? An answer to the first question can be given quite quickly. What Aquinas terms the divine ideas are ideas in the mind of God. Now, granted, this answer doesn't provide us with a substantive account, but at least gives us a basic sense of the terms involved. Providing an answer to the second question is more challenging, even for a basic semantic explanation, for behind this question lies the more fundamental and age-old query, namely, what is truth? As Dr. Fazer reminded us, quid est veritas, Pilate asked of Jesus before dismissively walking away. Long before the question was cynically posed to Christ, the same question was sincerely asked of Socrates by Glaucon, what is truth? It's this question that prompts Socrates in the Republic to present the famous platonic theory of forms or ideas, non-physical exemplar patterns that are the very nature and intelligibility of the items that we experience. For Plato, these forms are the truths by which the many things we experience have truth. Later Neoplatonists will locate these forms in the intellect of a divine being, and Christian thinkers in that tradition will locate them in the mind of God. Thus we find St. Augustine telling us, this is text 1, line 8, on the handout, that if these ideas, quote, are contained in the divine mind, and if there can be in the divine mind nothing except what is eternal and unchanging, and if these original principal reasons are what Plato terms ideas, then not only are they ideas, but they are themselves true. It is by participation in these that whatever is exists in whatever manner it does exist, end quote. In other words, these divine ideas are the truths according to which created things have truth. Aquinas himself follows in this Augustin, Neoplatonic Augustinian tradition. As we'll see, the divine ideas for him can be viewed as what contemporary philosophers term truth makers of created things, which themselves could be viewed as truth-bearers, items that have truth. In this way, there is a metaphysical truth in things. But as we'll also see, Aquinas follows in an Aristotelian tradition of locating truth in the intellect, raising questions for us regarding how there can be truth in things. And as is ever his way, Aquinas makes a number of distinctions in considering the nature of truth some of which we will now make along with him to address the topic at hand. So to this end, my talk has three parts. In the first part, I will present Aquinas' answer to the general question, what is truth? 
It's here that we're going to see the Aristotelian account of truth as present in the intellect. In the second part, I'll consider Aquinas' answer to the question, how is truth in things, by looking at the Neoplatonic influence on his view of truth as an attribute of beings. Finally, in the third part, I will provide a brief overview of Aquinas' account of the divine ideas, focusing on their role as truth makers for the things that God creates. Now, as a starting point for our investigations, I want to begin with a word about words by considering some terminology about terms. The word we're most concerned with right now is truth, which is closely related to the word true. So closely, it turns out that for Aquinas, these different words signify the same thing, which is to say the same formality. How they differ is in the way that they signify it, one abstractly and the other concretely. Now, this distinction I just laid out is itself abstract, so I'll make it more concrete by giving some examples to illustrate in the table in figure one. Consider the word dog. A dog is a concrete thing, and the word dog conveys that. It signifies a subject with the formality of dogness. Thus, we say of Fido that he is a dog, but we can't say that he is dogness, since Fido isn't identical with that very formality. Rather, he is a haver of dogness. And to signify the formality itself, we use the abstract term dogness. In a similar way, we might predicate other concrete terms of Fido, saying, for example, that he is white or that he is a father, signifying respectively that he is a haver of whiteness or haver of fatherhood, the formalities of which are signified by their own abstract terms. Now, I'm beginning with this semantic distinction to draw your attention to a point that I think is sometimes glossed over in discussions of truth, namely that the term truth is an abstract term, whereas the term true is a concrete one. Thus, semantically, truth signifies a formality had by the items we call true, and whatever it is that we call true is a haver of truth, or in other words, a truth bearer. Of course, the question is, what is it that a truth-bearer bears or has such that we call it true? Or again, what is truth? This is the question that Aquinas asks in the very first article of his work, De Veritate, on truth. There he presents nine different definitions of truth given by various predecessors, grouping them in triads based upon how the definition is arrived at, and these are listed for you in figure two. Now, in presenting these, I'm going to jump straight to the second triad because Aquinas tells us that those definitions provide an account of the complete ratio or formal nature of truth. I'll come back to touch upon the other two groups later. It's in the second group of definitions that we find Aquinas listing Aristotle's account of the true as presented in the metaphysics. This is number six on the table. Namely, when we say of what is, that it is or of what is not, that it is not. Aristotle's account indicates the view that somehow truth and the true concern not only reality, what is, but what is said about reality. Consider his stock example, which Aquinas also likes to employ, of the statement, Socrates is sitting, illustrated in figure three. By Aristotle's account, this assertion is true only if in reality there is just such a state of affairs, namely, 
where Socrates is engaged in the act of sitting. But if one says that he is sitting when in reality Socrates is standing, then the assertion is false. With that said, if we recall the second half of his definition, then when Socrates is in reality sitting, one could truly say of him he is not standing. Now, what contemporary philosophers term a state of affairs, Aquinas terms an enunciable, indicating that such a state can be enunciated or asserted in a proposition. It's only in vocalizations of this kind that truth can be found. By contrast, simply uttering the name Socrates or the word sitting is neither true nor false. As Aquinas explains in text two, commenting on Aristotle's metaphysics, our speech can be deemed true or false only when we compose, in other words, join, a subject together with a predicate in an affirmation, or else when we divide the two in a negation. For only such utterances assert what is or is not the case. So what we find is that for both Aristotle and Aquinas, spoken propositions can function as truth bearers whose truth makers are things and their enunciable states of affairs. And this makes sense if we consider the way people colloquially talk about truth, saying, she speaks the truth, or in current slang, true that, where the that references what the speaker just said, what she said. Nevertheless, spoken propositions aren't the only truth bearers for Aristotle and Aquinas, nor are they even the primary ones. Aquinas reminds us, again, text two at line nine, of Aristotle's position that our spoken words only indirectly signify things in reality. What they immediately signify are concepts in our minds. This relationship is known as the semantic triangle illustrated on page four. And it holds that our spoken words are signs or symbols of concepts in the intellect, which in turn are the likenesses of things in the world. Thus, as Aquinas notes in text two, just as there can be truth in spoken words, so can there be truth in the intellect, where, as with speech, truth is found only in complex affirmation, in the complex affirmation or negation of a judgment. More to the point, Aquinas tells us at line 49, that true and false exist primarily and principally in the intellect, and only secondarily in spoken words precisely because what spoken words immediately signify are concepts of the intellect. Following this Aristotelian view, then, Aquinas presents both our speech and thought as at least sometimes truth bearers, items that can be called by the concrete term true. But still unanswered is that original question, what is truth? Employing this abstract term, we are in a way asking, what is the truthiness of a true item? What is the formality by which a truth bearer is called true? The answer to that question isn't immediately brought out by Aristotle's account, but let's consider it again. There is truth when we say of what is, that it is, or of what is not, that it is not. The implicit assumption is that truth entails some sort of connection or correspondence between our thought or speech on the one hand and what is, or reality, on the other, which is to say some sort of relation between the two. If we return to Aquinas' De Veritate, we find him making this relationship explicit. At the start of text three, Aquinas identifies the connection between the nature of being and the true, 
as one of concordance. The Latin is conveniencia, agreement, harmony, the harmonization of the intellect and being. And this harmonizing can occur, he explains, because the intellect's knowledge of reality occurs through assimilation. The mind is made like what it knows. So in a way, the mind is made equal to things in reality. Or as Aquinas puts it, knowledge follows upon the adequation, making equal of intellect with a thing. And he tells us that this formulation, the adequation of intellect and thing, formally completes the account of the nature of the true, which is to say that this phrasing defines truth itself. As we see in figure two, number four definition, Aquinas attributes this definition to the Jewish Neoplatonist Isaac Israeli, albeit incorrectly. But while his attribution turns out to be incorrect, what Aquinas sees as clearly correct is the definition itself. And in its basics, the adequation definition expresses what contemporary philosophers term the correspondence theory of truth, namely that truth entails a correspondence between mind and reality. We see then that Aquinas' preferred definition is not in fact formulated by Aristotle himself, but it is clearly in the spirit of Aristotle's account. And yet, as we'll also see, Aquinas' formulation of the definition will allow him to go beyond Aristotle in considering both truth bearers and truth makers, even to the extent of seemingly inverting Aristotle's position. To begin to see why, let's consider again what Aristotle says count as the primary truth bearers, namely intellectual judgments. These, of course, exist in the intellect. For this reason, he famously observes that the true and the false are unlike good and evil. Good and evil exist in things. We might be tempted, therefore, to think that the terms true and false likewise pick out aspects of reality. But as Aquinas explains, back to text 2, line 29, Aristotle denies this, saying that true and false exist only in the mind. That it was line 29. And this Aristotelian position makes sense if we consider what is metaphysically entailed in an adequation or correspondence theory of truth. Such an account is distinctly relational, evidenced by the use of terms such as Aquinas' terms, such as concordance, assimilation, and conformity. To fully employ any of these terms, we need to use a relational preposition, concordance with, assimilation to, etc. If you flip all, I'm giving you your exercise today. If you flip back to page one, uh, figure one, we find that the concrete term true and the abstract truth are more akin to father and fatherhood than to white and whiteness. What we term true is something that is relative, something related to another. Thus, what we term truth must itself, what we term truth must itself be a kind of relation, namely of adequation of one thing to another, the intellect to an extramental thing. Now, to say the truth is relative in this sense doesn't mean that it's subjective. The assimilation is real, which is to say that there is a real relation at play. But notice that the reality of this relation goes in one direction, namely from the intellect to the thing known, as I illustrate in figure four, that's on page four. In that example, we see that the intellect is dependent upon Socrates and his sitting 
for the truth of its judgment, but that judgment has no bearing on whether Socrates sits or not. In other words, properly speaking, real states of affairs are not items that are adequated to our thoughts, but rather it's the other way around, or in contemporary terms, as we heard earlier, there's a mind-to-world direction of fit. This is precisely why Aristotle concludes that truth and falsity are only in the mind. Given this Aristotelian position and Aquinas' commitment to the adequation definition of truth, we might well ask how Aquinas can hold that in a real and meaningful way, truth is also in things. This brings us to part two of my talk concerning the Neoplatonic Augustinian influence on Aquinas. We begin to see an answer to our question about truth in things if we consider again Aquinas' phrasing of his definition. Again, the relational character of adequation entails that semantically when we speak in terms of it, we employ the preposition to. One item is adequated to another. And indeed, Aquinas himself usually speaks that way, but notice that he doesn't do so in his definition. Instead, he says that truth is the, at quote, adequation of intellect and thing. Moreover, he usually inverts the word order, presenting the definition as adequation of thing and intellect. His phrasing thus suggests that he doesn't see the relational character of truth as limited to pointing in one direction. In other words, the definition allows not only for the adequation of intellect to thing, but also of thing to intellect. To be clear, this isn't to say that he sees truth as a mutual relation in the way that friendship is such that Socrates' friendship with Plato presupposes Plato's friendship with Socrates. Instead, truth is relational more in the manner of fatherhood, where Socrates is related as father to Lamprocles, but as son to Sophroniscus, who bears the relation of fatherhood toward Socrates. If truth is relative in this manner, then extramental things could themselves be truth bearers in a way other than considered so far. And in fact, Aquinas thinks that there's evidence in our common experience to bear out this assessment. Again, thus far we've been considering things as truth makers to which our intellect is adequated. According to Aquinas, things cause truth in us as measures of the intellect. And he sees this notion of measure as indicated in Anselm's definition of truth, which is number five on the table, namely, rectitude perceptible to the mind alone. Nevertheless, Aquinas explains, there are instances when the human intellect is itself a rule or measure of things, namely, in the case of artistic knowledge. You can consult text four, I won't read that to you. But consider a carpenter who produces a chest, as I illustrate on page five. His knowledge doesn't depend upon the chest that he makes, but it's the other way around. The chest depends on his knowledge, which is its measure. If the chest is produced as intended, then it's true to the artisan's idea. In fact, we find that carpenters use the language of truing. We thus see this fundamental difference between what Aquinas terms our speculative knowledge in relation to the natural world versus the artisan's practical knowledge in relation to his effects. For this reason, Aquinas takes Aristotle's statement that truth is, quote, only in the mind to be relevant for the sort of truth that Aquinas terms veritus intellectus, truth of the intellect, or what we've heard can also be called logical truth. 
As we now see, he thinks that there's also another sort of truth, which he calls veritas rei, truth of the thing, as illustrated in the case of human art. Here, things stand as measured truth bearers in relation to human knowledge as truth-making measures. Of course, artificial things are only a small class of extramental beings, and the truth they possess is relative only to the knowledge of the individuals who produce them, and yet Aquinas holds that the sort of truth found in things is nevertheless found in all things, not just artifacts. Thus he considers the term true, like good and one, to be transcendental, predicable of every being. But if that is the case, then every being, inasmuch as it is a being, must somehow be adequated to an intellect that measures the being as such. And this is exactly Aquinas' position. As he explains again in the De Veritate, this is text number five, at line 80, we're told, although natural things are not measured by the human intellect, they are all measured by the divine, quote, in which is everything, just as all artifacts are in the intellect of an artisan. Thus Aquinas continues, quote, the divine intellect is a measure that is not measured, whereas natural things are measured and measured, and our intellect is measured and is not a measure of natural things, but only of artificial ones, end quote. So natural things are placed, as it were, between two intellects, the human and the divine. And Aquinas explains that they can thus be called true as things in two respects, either according to their adequation to the human intellect or to the divine. Now, as I've already noted, Natural things are not, properly speaking, adequated to our intellects. More precisely, they produce an adequation to themselves in us. Thus, Aquinas will say that, in this respect, natural things can be called true as things because they have an aptitude to cause such truth. And yet, as he notes at line 34, such things are, by priority, adequated to the divine intellect. Thus, truth is primarily and properly said to be in natural things because of their adequation to the mind of God. In fact, Aquinas goes so far as to say, given this analogical usage of the term truth and true, that uh, calling things true simply because of their aptitude to produce truth in our minds is not only secondary, but an improper use of the term. It's said impropriate. So the proper way is considering their relation to the divine intellect. Aquinas is so committed to the adequation definition of truth that he ends the corpus of this article with this striking observation at line 38, quote, hence, even if there were no human intellect, things could be called true from their order to the divine intellect. But if both intellects were removed and neither were to understand, and if per impossibile things remained in existence, in no way would the formal nature, ratio, of truth remain. Of course, this last scenario, as Aquinas notes, is impossible. Were there no God to know things, not only would they not be true, but neither would they exist. But assuming for the sake of argument that they did somehow still exist, they would not be true at all because they would not be adequated to any intellect. Again, truth for Aquinas in its formal nature is relational. I find this text really interesting because Aquinas doesn't usually like to do these thought experiments in the pluperfect subjunctive, what if it would have been the case, or what if it were the case? So it's an interesting text. 
Returning to the list of definitions of truth given in De Veritate 1.1, back on page 2, we have a better sense of the connection between these three sets of definitions. We've been focusing so far on the second triad, which bring out this fundamental relational character of truth. The third triad, by contrast, define truth from its effect, our knowledge of things and also our reflective knowledge that our, uh, what we know is true. By contrast, the first triad of definitions identify the metaphysical foundation of truth, which is the being of things, and hence Augustine's definition of truth as that which is. But we don't have the full formal completion there that's brought out with the adequation account. Now, as we've just seen, Aquinas holds that the being of things depends upon God's knowledge of them, so there must be a metaphysical truth that is present in things by which they are adequated to that knowledge. As I've noted, this is what Aquinas terms truth of the thing, which I have also been calling the truth of being, and other scholars call it ontological truth, and it is this sort of truth that is caused by the divine ideas. And so to the third part of my talk. From the time of his earliest writings, Aquinas adopts a doctrine of divine ideas, arguing that just as there are ideas in the mind of the human artisan, so in an analogous way there are in the mind of God. And he presents these divine ideas as serving a twofold role an epistemolo as epistemological principles, accounting for God's knowledge of created beings, and as ontological principles, accounting for their production. Aquinas' most thorough treatment of the divine ideas appears in question three of the De Veritate. In Article 1, he cites Augustine's observation that the word idea can be translated from the Greek into Latin as either forma or species. But the notion of form can be understood in different respects. And Aquinas explains that the sort of form that the name idea signifies is one that is separate from what it forms because it is what he terms a forma ad quam, a form according to which something else is formed. In this respect, it is an exemplar, an imitation of which something is made. Now, before addressing the divine ideas in particular, Aquinas further clarifies in text 6 the general nature of an idea in terms of its causal features, identifying four essential characteristics. This is on page 7, starting at line 45. First, as I've noted, an idea is a form, but as I've also indicated, it's not the sort of form that is intrinsic to an effect in the way, for example, that the soul of a dog, such as Fido, is intrinsic to the dog. Again, an idea is a form that an effect imitates. This is the second key characteristic that Aquinas identifies. But again, these first two traits aren't unique to ideas since there are other sorts of extrinsic forms or exemplars that effects imitate. As Aquinas indicates elsewhere, and I illustrate in figure seven, the form of a natural agent such as Fido's dog form can be considered a sort of natural exemplar of his effect, for example, his offspring Rover, who shares a likeness in form to his father. Yet another sort of exemplar is a model that is employed as an extrinsic formal cause in producing a work of art, as when a picture is painted in imitation of Fido. This sort of artistic exemplar is extrinsic not only to the effect, but to the agent as well, unlike either a natural exemplar or an idea. 
Still, as with natural exemplarism, the, art, the artistic exemplarism of a model presupposes the intention of an agent if a work of art by mere chance happens to share a similitude with another object, for example, Fido's painted image happens to look like Rex, then there's no exemplar causality at play. And this is similarly the case with an idea. Thus, the third characteristic of an idea that Aquinas brings out is that its causality presumes the intention of an agent acting for an end. In the fourth and final element of his definition, Aquinas identifies, as it were, the specific difference of an idea, making clear that its causality also concerns the teleology of the effect, since this sort of intellectual exemplarism entails the agent itself principally determining the effect's end. Thus, if we consider the production of spot, Boston Dynamics' very cool, albeit very creepy, robo-dog, illustrated in figure seven, we not only find that its engineers intend Spot to be like their idea of it, but also that they predetermine Spot's end, giving it its function. This sort of predetermination of the end by the agent is unique to the sort of intellectual exemplarism exercised by ideas. So we're seeing that we tend to use the word idea to capture or refer to any kind of concept, but for Aquinas, he's giving a very technical sense. So given this general account of ideas drawn from artistic production, Aquinas insists that there must be ideas in the mind of God, because he made the world by intellect and not by either chance or necessity. So God must have proper knowledge of each and every creature yet in such a way that doesn't compromise the simplicity of his divine essence. As Aquinas clarifies in text seven, in perfectly knowing his own simple essence, which is esse subsistens, the infinite act of existing, God knows it in every way in which it is knowable, not only as it is in itself, but also in as much as its likeness can be participated by creatures. It's God's knowledge of these participabilities, if you will, that Aquinas thinks constitutes the divine ideas. In this way, there can be a multiplicity of ideas in the mind of God, according to the order of understanding, although not according to the order of reality. Thus, Aquinas presents the divine ideas as only conceptually distinct from each other and from God, and yet, as he makes clear in text eight and elsewhere, this conceptual distinction and multiplicity is not simply according to our understanding, but to God's as well. In other words, this language of divine ideas is not simply metaphor, nor is Aquinas' embrace of the doctrine merely a sop to the Augustinian tradition. Rather, he holds that ideas are literally in the mind of God, albeit in an analogical manner consistent with his simplicity. Now, in light of Aquinas' general definition, he draws a distinction between a, a strict and a broad sense of what constitutes a divine idea. Taken in the strict sense, a divine idea belongs to God's practical knowledge and is viewed as the form of something that is produced into existence. Since universal natures, such as genera and species, can't exist outside of the mind as universals, neither can they be made by God. Instead, only individual things, such as Socrates, are operable. So strictly speaking, there are divine ideas 
for Aquinas, only of individuals, individual substances and their accidents. Taken in a broad sense of the term, however, an idea can belong to God's speculative knowledge and does not concern things inasmuch as they are producible. In this way, the term idea signifies simply the intelligible notion, the ratio or likeness of a thing. Aquinas concludes that yes, in this respect, there are divine ideas also of genera and species and even of pure possibles. Thus, as he brings out in text nine, if we follow the broad sense of the term, there are different divine ideas corresponding to Socrates as Socrates, as a man, and as an animal, since he differs in these various respects according to the order of understanding. But such ideas belong to God's speculative knowledge, so they aren't all causal principles of Socrates. Instead, since an idea properly belongs to practical knowledge, Aquinas explains in text 9, line 3, that, quote, a single divine idea corresponds to the singular, the species, the genus, and what is individuated in the singular itself. For Socrates, man and animal, are not distinguished according to reality. So we see kind of the radical Aristotelian position he's taking of the ontological status of the singular carried through to this Neoplatonic account of ideas. Thus, God makes Socrates in the likeness of his idea of Socrates. But as I've noted, that idea is only conceptually distinct from the divine essence, so one might well ask, well, isn't this simply another way of saying Socrates is made in the likeness of God, who in his essence is just the exemplar of all things? Yes and no. As ever, Aquinas makes a distinction, this time between two kinds of divine exemplarism, discussed in both texts 10 and 11 on your handout. One sort does indeed entail the divine nature as such, which makes sense if we consider that whatever God makes is a being to some degree, like God, who is, who in his nature is pure subsisting being. So it's gotta be like God in his nature in some respect. If we consider again the different types of exemplar causality that I had illustrated in figure seven, this would be a sort of natural exemplarism. But unlike when a dog generates another dog of the same nature, with the exemplarism of the divine nature, God's essence stands to his effects as what Aquinas calls, we're now in text 11, line 11, God's essence stands to his effects as what Aquinas calls, quote, the super-excelling likeness of all things. For this reason, God's effects are not of the same formality as his nature, since every created being falls short of his infinite perfection. As both texts 10 and 11 indicate, this sort of divine exemplarism concerns transcendentals and pure perfections that are predicated of both God and creature, such as being, goodness, and life. The second sort of divine exemplarism is that of the divine ideas. Here, Aquinas explains, now in text 10 at line 18, quote, every single thing attains a perfect imitation of that which is in the divine intellect. Why? For any such thing is as he has ordained it to be, end quote. Thus, whereas Socrates falls short of the infinite perfection of the divine nature, he is exactly as God has intended, for God is not a deficient artisan. And Socrates is able to perfectly imitate his respective divine idea precisely because of the intentional or cognitional status of that exemplar. 
whereas the divine nature as such excels all else. An idea, Aquinas explains in text 11, line 5, can be of the same formality of the thing that is understood precisely because it's God's understanding of himself as participable in a limited way. And I think this all makes sense if we consider that although Socrates can be more or less similar to God in his nature, he can't be more or less similar to the idea of Socrates. Either he's like it or he's not. Or in other terms, being Socrates doesn't admit of degrees. If we continue with Aquinas' analogy from art then, we might compare the role of exemplarism in God's creative act to an artist's painting a self-portrait, as illustrated in figure eight. In such artistic production, the artist makes something that stands in imitation both of himself and of his idea of some aspect of himself. If we assume that the completed portrait is painted as the artist has intended, then it stands as a perfect likeness of the idea in his mind. But that same portrait is only an imperfect likeness of the artist himself, not because it's flawed, but because it captures him from only one angle, or it's the likeness of his face alone and not his whole body, etc. In a similar way, God makes things in the likeness of his very nature, freely and knowingly. In knowing himself, he knows all the ways in which his likeness can be imitated by his effects. Thus, in creating them, he causes things that are at once both imperfect likenesses of his very nature, but perfect likenesses of their respective divine ideas. And here's where we return to our theme of truth, because as we've seen, truth entails adequation, a making equal of one to another. Each and every created being is adequated to its respective divine idea because it perfectly imitates that idea. Again, Socrates perfectly imitates the divine idea of Socrates. Thus, there is truth in him. For as Aquinas says, way back in text 5, line 20, that's on page 5 if you want to flip, but don't worry, something is called true, quote, inasmuch as it fulfills that to which it is ordained by the divine intellect, end quote. In this respect, then, the divine ideas can be seen as truth makers of the things that they exemplify, but what exactly is in those things by which they are intrinsically true? One possible answer is the being's individuated essence. As we've seen, the divine idea of a singular, such as Socrates, exemplifies its quidditative notes, both universal and individuated. And yet, this answer is at odds with an observation made by Aquinas in his early commentary on the sentences. This is text 12, the last on the handout nearly there, where he explicitly addresses the question of whether truth is a thing's essence. Reminding us that within a being, there's both its quiddity and its essay, Aquinas explains at line 25, the quote, 29, that, quote, truth is founded in the thing's essay rather than in its quiddity, end quote. As a lead-in to this claim, Aquinas draws a semantic distinction, noting that what a name signifies can differ in one of three ways. Some names signify things that exist outside of the mind with a complete reality. For example, a human or a stone, which he tells us elsewhere have, or what the name signifies, has an immediate foundation in reality. Another class of names signifies something that has no foundation in reality. For example, names of fictional beasts like the chimera. Our understanding of the whatnesses of such things is derived entirely, he says, from an act of the mind. 
The third class of names signify objects that are in between the first two. They have a foundation in reality, and yet their complete formal account, or ratio, results from an operation of the mind. This is the case, for example, with universals. There are no extramental universal entities corresponding to our notions of the species human, for example, or the genus animal. Here, the intellect, in considering real natures, adds the intention or notion of universality to its conception. For this reason, universals don't have an immediate foundation in reality, and yet they're not mere fictions like the chimera. Instead, Aquinas makes clear they have a remote foundation in the real items that are extramental. I take you through all this because he concludes that what the term truth signifies similarly has a remote foundation. Yes, its formal nature is immediately completed by a consideration of the intellect. Namely, he tells us, the apprehension of a thing according to the manner or mode, the way, the modus in which it is. But the formal nature of truth nevertheless has a remote foundation in the thing itself, namely its essay. Aquinas clarifies his position for us with another semantic observation regarding the nature of truth, line 29, namely that this remote foundation is in the thing, quote, just as the name being, ends, is taken from to be, essay, end quote. Here we again come back to the distinction between the concrete and the abstract. Whereas a concrete term signifies the haver of a formality, an abstract term signifies that formality itself. Yes, to be a being is to exist in a certain way according to a, certain, to a given mode, namely as an individuated essence, this man Socrates or that dog Fido. But what makes a being a being is its beingness, if you will, its essay. Thus Aquinas will speak concretely of a being as a haver of essay. And I take him in text 12 to be indicating that similarly, to be something true is to be a haver of truth. And when we consider truth in things, the haver or truth bearer is again the individuated essence that is Socrates or Fido. And what it has as its truth within it is its essay. But to be precise, it is that essay considered as apprehended by an intellect, the divine, according to the mode that it has in the thing. In sum, then, it is the actually existing thing through its individuated essence that is adequated to an idea in the divine intellect, and yet the thing is adequated from within by its essay in this respect. Without that act of existing, it would neither be a being nor be known as true. To conclude, my presentation, of course, provides merely an introduction to Aquinas' account of the divine ideas and truth in things. There are a number of other distinctions that he gives regarding truth and the true that deserve consideration. Moreover, as regards the divine ideas as truth makers, there are further questions to consider, for example, concerning the role of the divine will or of God's knowledge as the cause of enunciable states of affairs. My hope, however, is that you have at least found this presentation to be adequate to the general topic at hand, that it was sufficiently adequated to the thought of Aquinas, and that as a result, it was true to his ideas. Thank you.
Questions? Yeah, go For a thing to exist at all, it must be known into existence by God. Yes. Um, what, 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 wasn't, what I didn't get into detail about also willed into existence. So I, simply God thinking. I, I, and that's part of the practical intellect. That is correct. order to do, to create. And then there's the speculative aspect in which there is the exemplar idea of God or in, in God's mind of the individuated specimen. And the real question I'm struggling with is, and this goes back to Dr. Fasher's uh, talk, how is there falsity in a thing? That is, how can a thing fall short of its idea in the mind of God? Right. If the idea in the mind of God must be exactly as the thing is existing at any given moment. Right. So is there a practical idea in the mind of God as the thing exists at any moment and a speculative idea of the thing in the mind of God as it should exist. Okay, good, thank you. Okay, so really hearing Dr. Fazer's presentation, I realized I, given the, the title, the theme I was given and uh, worked with, I really delimited my consideration to the truth in things and thinking of them as singulars, as individuals, and What's that for Aquinas? What's the idea of that? And as I brought out with that one quotation, uh, the exemplar idea of Socrates concerns those quidditative and individual notes in him. Also, by extension, all the properties that follow necessarily, even, even individual ones that follow from his matter, right? And so I see Aquinas, these texts saying that this lines up perfectly in that respect well, surely, you know, there can be some degree of falsity in things that God creates, but not as I'm seeing it in this, if you will, low-level, basic, convertibility, transcendental notion of truth. And the parallel that I think of is with Aquinas' treatment of good, being in good or convertible. And one objector points out in the Summa, well, wait a second, if you're saying they're the same in reality, how does, how does this track? Things can be more or less good, there are grades of goodness, but they can't be, individuals can't be more or less a being, they either exist or they don't, that's binary. And Aquinas replies by drawing a distinction between a qualified sense of good and a qualified sense of being and an unqualified sense. In the unqualified sense of being, you exist. In the qualified sense of being, you exist as. You can have these accidental traits added on. With good, it's sort of the inverse. The unqualified sense of good means best. And for created things to be at their best, they need to have perfecting accidents. And those wouldn't be entailed in the divine idea of Socrates, because he needs to attain those. He needs to attain the virtues, etc., that are going to perfect him. Those aren't quidditative notes or brought about by his individual matter. But like good, there's the qualified sense where merely existing is good. It's not best, but it's good. And I think there's something similar here. So I'm trying to get to the most basic ontological sense of truth in things, starting with that. And Aquinas, I read him, he's saying it's the essay of the thing 
But the essay is modified by the essence. Is there an idea in the mind of God the best? Of Socrates at his best? Yes. I don't, I don't think, no. There's not, in this respect, that an idea, it, it's really capturing the simple, the incomplex. So, now, does that mean that God doesn't know how Socrates could be at his best? No, but that's when we're getting into this whole other area that I allude to at the end, enunciables, right? Uh, so God knows those complexities, but now we'd be considering Socrates as virtuous. Uh, and that, that's a different examination there in terms of God's knowledge. In terms of the idea, it's corresponding to this in, individuated singular essence. So the final cause is not, the final cause of Socrates becoming fulfilled is not in God's mind. No, I think that would be there. It just wouldn't be part and parcel of the idea of Socrates. Uh, it would be in addition. I find the discussion of the divine ideas really confusing. <laughs> uh, in a certain way, which is probably a good thing. Not necessarily these suspicions. I don't know what it was like for God, thank you, but and I find it really confusing. I mean, I don't find it confusing if you read Thomas when he talks about the divine ideas as providing us a way of talking about God. It becomes really confusing for me when it looks like in Thomas he's trying to give an explanation of things, like of creation, of creation. Right? So in this particular discussion, it's, it's hard not to read him as giving an explanation of the truth of things in relation to the right ideas. But I don't see that it explains anything. Um, mm. Because we have this problem that the conceptual distinction between the divine ideas as divine ideas is taken from creatures. Why is the divine idea of human beings distinct from the divine idea of uh, horses or No, that's a great question, and I don't know that I have a fully satisfactory answer for you other than to maybe point out one of his big concerns in presenting an account of divine ideas and why he wants to insist that, it, that the conceptual distinction is not just according to our awareness but to God's as well, is his concern to affirm that 
God knows things in their distinctness and that he's responding to an avicenna on the one hand who's saying that, oh yeah, God, God knows everything, but in this general way. Like, if you knew the nature of an eclipse in the way you know every eclipse, the one that happens next year, a thousand years from now. And Aquinas says, that's not proper knowledge. Uh, and so, you know, this presupposes that he's already reasoned in a queer manner from God's effects back to the existence of God, that God must be intelligent, that God created the world freely and intelligently, and also he's now deducing by question 15 that uh, he's got to know things in their distinctness. Uh, and so, yeah, it's going to be a struggle for us because how do we know what that's like for a being in its simplicity to know all, not only know all things in itself, but know them somehow in their distinctness. And this is not a satisfactory comparison, but I think of, you know, someone who's blind being told by someone who's sighted, you know, in a single perceptive glance, I can be aware of a myriad of objects, tens of thousands. And the person who's blind will just say, I have to take your word for that. And I think Aquinas is doing his best to say, okay, look, we can establish the fact of the matter in this queer way from effect to cause to say, you know, it must be the case that God is intelligent. He must know things. He must somehow know things in their distinctness. There are these modes of being that are less than the fullness of his essence and in knowing himself. He knows all those modes. In the Contra Gentiles, he gives the example Again, every comparative analogy limps, but of, if you know the number 10, somehow you know that by subtraction, you know the numbers 9, 8, 7, in a way, it's sort of like that. So I don't think it, that's going to fully satisfy your question, but... Well, I mean, the only thing I'd say is it still sounds like you're talking, that's a way of talking about God, but not a way of explaining Well, except in this respect that it's saying that God creates and he creates things like himself and he does so knowingly but i don't know that that gets to the heart of your question i think my question is kind of similar um and i would put it by drawing an analogy so we would say god is identical to his attributes in some sense so like god is god's goodness but it is for god to be good it's just for god to be god and i understand if i'm right that thomas would say we don't fully understand what that means, but while we're thinking of goodness, we just want to make sure to remove imperfections um, and limitations to think of God as unlimitedly good. And we may not be able to comprehend that, but somehow God is identical to his goodness. It seems harder in the case of knowledge, especially knowledge of particulars, or even forms of particulars, because to say that God is identical to his goodness is pretty, goodness is pretty general. But now we're going to say God is identical to his knowledge and to his knowledge of Socrates and to his knowledge of man. That just seems like a limitation on knowledge. To say knowledge of X, that seems precisely like the kind of limitation you need to carve off to say that God has this. Yeah. Okay. God is identical with his knowledge, but we're talking about uh, the if we come to the language and Aquinas wants to try and in an analogical way, map this language we've been hearing about, intelligible species and concepts, and say, okay, there is a single medium a quo, 
intelligible species by which God knows. And that's what he's identical with, his very essence. But there are many termini, he says, of his understanding in considering that essence in various limited ways. And so he considers all the various modes of being down to the individual. And those are not identical. Well, in ratio, they are not identical with the divine essence. So we don't say that, Socrates, that God is Socrates. Or uh, is it Eriugena who says, you know, trying to take this Neoplatonic approach, God is, God is a worm, God is not a worm, God is the superworm, the hyperworm. Aquinas is not going to go that route, you know. In no way, except metaphorically, can God be called a worm, even though the idea of a worm is in his mind. In light of this discussion, what might be said for the following saying of the many, be true to yourself? Might this mean be true to human nature, something more individuated? Be true to yourself. Okay, uh, well... Uh, as I alluded to at the end, there are a number of other distinctions Aquinas brings out about truth, because we can also talk about definitions as true. We can talk about friends as true, gold, true gold, you know, as was discussed before. Um, so what does it mean to be true to yourself? Uh, I think when people say that, they're not talking in exactly in this metaphysical sense that Aquinas is concerned of when he's saying, what's the truth in the thing? Is it the essence or is it the essay that's convertible with being? I suspect they're saying, you know, in terms of your character, your ideals, your values, um, act in a way that lines up with that. And we could ev ev eventually reduce stuff back to the mind of God, but not, not in an imme immediate way. I don't think that's, that uh, applies right away here. Kind of dodge your question, but not, well, not exactly. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, sure, I think he would agree with that, yeah. But that doesn't mean uh, live up to the divine idea of you in the way that he understands idea as a productive principle in the mind of God, the singular thing accounting for its existence is this. I don't think it means, as I'm reading Aquinas, I don't think it means to live up to it, it's to exist. You are as he intended. Just as that my illustration of the chest, the craftsman makes the chest and it is as he intended and it lines up with that. I mean, the shortcoming of that analogy is that artisans are really only the cause, Aquinas tells us, of the coming into being of things. Once the artisan finish, finishes making the chest, we can say it lined up with what he intended, but his causality is done. He can die. The chest is still there, right? Um, but you, you've got to live up to the mind of God. And it happens, you know, this is a metaphysical point. Let's give our thanks to God. Thank you.